glad to be here. Uh, you know, in the last few weeks, we've been talking about gratitude. We're going to continue that discussion uh, this morning. Uh, Thanksgiving, it's right around the corner, and I'm sure in the next two weeks, whether in school or work or with your family or in class, whatever, in some way or another, uh, you're going to reflect on something that you're grateful for. Uh, that, that's going to happen in some context in the next two weeks, and that's great. Um, but as you all know, uh, Thanksgiving for disciples of Jesus, as, you know, as Christians, it can't just be a holiday, it can't just be a season, it's, it's a way of life for us, right? In the same way that when Christmas comes around, you know, we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus, uh, that's awesome, but we celebrate it all the time. And when Easter comes around and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we celebrate that all the time. But thankfulness, it's an attitude that we've got to adopt as disciples uh, in everything that we do. And the scriptures, of course, support this in a very strong way. I want to just point out a couple to you. If you want to try to flip there quickly, uh, you can try to race me. But as soon as you finish reading it, I'm going to jump to the next one. Oh, wow. Thank you, wife. You're awesome. I'm thankful for Michelle and a drink of water. So uh, in First Chronicles uh, 16.34, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. God's goodness, His abundant love for us, His everlasting love, those things are deserving of continual, eternal thanks. That's pretty awesome. We can always be thankful for that love of God. It's something we'll always be able to grab onto. Psalm 100, verse 4 says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. We get the opportunity to come through the doors of the sanctuary together. And we ought to praise His name together with thankfulness. Isn't it great to be able to come into His courts with, with praise and thanksgiving? Uh, it's, it's awesome to be able to do that week in and week out together. 1 Corinthians 1.4 says, I always thank my God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. This is Paul talking about the church in Corinth. And he's saying... Uh, man, we, we can really be grateful for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't it great that we've got fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? And you're not just trying to figure, figure this out all by yourself? Man, and, and Paul sets an example for us that we should be thankful for one another and continually remember one another in our prayers and thank God for that. So as disciples, we're, we're thankful for the Lord and for His goodness. We're thankful for the opportunity to worship Him in his presence with other disciples. We're thankful for one another. It's amazing to consider how the grace of God has changed everybody in this room in some way. Uh, You're different from what you were before. And when you look around the congregation, you can say, wow, look at how the grace of God has affected everybody here. That's amazing. And and one more verse in Colossians 1.7 says, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, Do it all for the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. More than anything else, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus. Whatever we do, whatever we say, it ought to be done in the name of Jesus with a heart of thankfulness to God. Man, isn't it awesome to have Jesus? To have Jesus in our lives, to help us be different. That's something we can be thankful for every day. So we thank God for His goodness, for His love. We skip happily into church 
to worship Him uh, with our brothers and sisters who we're excited to see. Uh, We understand that whatever we do, whether in word or in deed, it should be done in the name of Jesus and bathed in a spirit of thankfulness. As we've discussed in the last few weeks, a true gratitude is associated with action as well. All the things that I mentioned this morning start in the heart, but then they end up showing themselves in an outward sign of your thankfulness. If we're really grateful, it would make sense that our lives would bear the fruit of that thankful disposition. But what if that's not the case? What if this scene of joyful, thankful bliss is just beginning to feel oppressive and almost even impossible? Is that possible sometimes too? As you're walking through life, you think, man, I just can't find a way to really be very thankful because I'm going through quite a bit and it's hard. You know, there's a reality that exists somewhere between being thankful and joyful like I've described and being unthankful. Think about this. You know what being thankful looks like. When you're thankful, you're energized and you're, you're, you're passionate and you're positive. It's hard not to smile because you can barely believe your good fortune at just living life. It feels like that, like nothing can go wrong. When you're on the opposite end of being thankful, you're, you're displeased, you're, you're dissatisfied, you're joyless, unhappy, unpleased, unsatisfied, you're left wanting. But, you know, I would venture to guess that there's actually a space in between those two dispositions. Uh, a lot of the time, when you're not feeling and acting thankful, you're not necessarily displeased, you're somewhere in the middle. It's not like I'm, I'm so mad at this situation that's happening to me. You're not all the way over there. It's not like you're ungrateful for the situation you have, but you're just not celebrating it in a spirit of thankfulness. You see how there's kind of a, a, a polar opposites that you could be, but most of the time we're not at one or the other. Like I can't stand my life that I'm living right now and I'm in total bliss. Usually we're in the middle, somewhere in the middle. You know, there, there might even be some genuine thankfulness that's there. It's lingering around in your mind, but it's not quite enough to change your disposition towards life. But it's there. It's somewhere. You know it is. You just got to uncover it and remind yourself of what you're thankful for. You know, it's my understanding that in this middle zone, we've been snared by what is perhaps one of the ugliest of human behaviors. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. That's the behavior of apathy. Apathy is commonly thought to be specific to non-emotion. I don't care. It's this apathetic feeling that carries with it an air of smugness. It's untapped potential. Relationally, you're disengaged. Uh, We think of apathy as slowness. Uh, It's numb, half-hearted. It's almost like an emotional anesthetic. The unfortunate reality in our culture, though, is that this apathy has evolved into something that is almost less condemnable by modern standards. I don't care has become a parasite on something that's much more forceful. That doesn't matter. You know, recently, apathy has thrown off its garments of unrespectability, and it's 
taken the judgment seat of cultural prestige. It's almost cool to be apathetic. It's almost celebrated to be apathetic. If you see somebody walking through life without cares and they're just kind of chill, that carries with it this smug coolness that others say, yeah, I kind of want to be like that too. But it's masking something deeper on the inside. I'm not motivated is replaced with a bigger philosophical gun saying, I'm not persuaded. You have to persuade me to feel. You have to persuade me to care. Self-indulgence now piggybacks on self-involvement. You know, the more that we say it doesn't matter, it, it carries with it this powerful sense of that I don't care. It's, it's complex. Topics of God, church, love, community, spiritual discipline, theological conviction, relational faithfulness, life, work, family, friends, whatever, they all receive this definitive self-assured and prideful, meh, whatever, doesn't, doesn't matter to me. And for whatever reason, that disposition is wildly acceptable to carry in our world. It's okay to feel apathetic. As with any concept, you know, it's, it's best to begin you know, with this clear definition. So I want you to grab on a clear definition of what apathy is. It's a disposition of dismissal or reluctance towards a particular idea, person, or group, and it's often experienced as a lack of emotion. It's reluctance and it's dismissal. I'm not going to get involved, and if I were to get involved, I don't really care that much. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. Uh, Before... Uh, we talk about what might cause apathy and what we can do about it. I want to look at this biblical example, maybe one of the best for this idea. It's a parable that we know, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, I'll read the whole thing, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, (laughs) you've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? 
The expert in the law replied, the one that had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. He could be done right there. (laughs) He could be done right there. The expert in the Jewish law tested Jesus. This looks like it's going to fall, and I don't want that to distract you. Let me just put it right there. All right. Cool. I don't know if it was bugging anybody else. It was bugging me, so I'll, I'll do it. So this, this expert tests Jesus, and the idea behind this Greek word for tested, it, it's not necessarily mean or evil-hearted. Uh, it, it could have just been a sincere question from a sincere seeker. It could have been. Um, you know, what do I do to inherit eternal life? You're a great teacher. I want to know. You know, and Jesus points this guy back to what's written in the law. If the question is, what shall I do to inherit uh, eternal life? The answer is simple. Keep the law of God and keep it perfectly. Just do what the law says and you'll be fine. Um, but, the, you know, the teacher of the law answers and says, okay, yeah, it's the greatest command. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, this guy was wise enough to know that this is the essence of the law. Jesus says that this really sums up all of the Old Testament, this command, and then the second, like it. He says, okay, do, do this and, and you'll live. You know, it's, it's clear enough to know what it means to love God with all that we are, though it's exceedingly difficult to do. We kind of get it in theory, but in practice, so difficult, so difficult, it, you know, it, it's like, raise your hand as high as you can. Now higher. <laughs> now higher. <laughs> you know, it, it, with, with everything you got, there's always, a, it feels like a little bit more. And so it's hard to figure out how to do this practically without, you know, um, w- within the con- you know, confines of reality. It's hard to figure it out. But there's more confusion about this, you know, what, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? This, this doesn't mean that we must love ourselves before we love anybody else. It means that in the same way that you take care of yourself and are concerned about your own interests, you should take care of and have concern for the interests of others. Think back to the parable. This guy did exactly what he would have done for himself if he had been beaten up by robbers and had a chance to heal himself and take care of himself. He did what was necessary. He took care of him as if it was he that was beaten up by robbers. You know, this guy, he made a couple of mistakes, and um, I think they, they, they highlight something that we should grab onto as well. The first, and maybe the greatest mistake, was that he, was, he assumed already that he had completed the first commandment. He kind of like really quickly went, oh, yeah, 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 and the second one. He went right on to it. He kind of assumed that, yeah, he, he, he had that one all taken care of. <laughs> You know, if he, if he was to really consider what it would mean, then uh, he wouldn't have even needed to ask the second question. You know, the second mistake, maybe, that he made is, you know, he was thinking that he could maybe fulfill the commandment to love God with all he had and still possibly not fulfill the command to love his neighbor. Automatically, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you don't even need to be told to do the second one You'll just do it because in your love for God, you're going to love other people. And maybe a third mistake that he made was that he really wanted to narrowly define who his neighbor was. If only our friends and those that are easy to love are our neighbors, then maybe this guy fulfills the law. 
but it all depends on how broad the definition is. The Jews in Jesus' day did believe that you had to love your neighbor, but they also taught that it was a duty before God to hate your enemy. You know, it, it all depended on who your neighbor was and who your enemy was. And so when this guy was trying to define it, he was trying to figure it out uh, based on the cultural expectation of the day. And Jesus came to overturn all of that. He said, no, everybody is your neighbor. I want to take a minute now and just look at some of these other guys. You know, verse 31 says that a priest happened to be going down the same, side, you know, the same road, and he sees the man, and he passed by on the other side. Wait a second, he's a priest? And he, he, he goes to the other side of the street? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? And verse 32, so wait, wait a second, a Levite? They're supposed to be the holy, the holy people. The, they're supposed to like, take care of other people. And he, he passed to the other side too? And the Samaritan, wait a second, a Samaritan? And we all know how the Jews viewed the Samaritans. Not even as a, a full people. And, and he was the one that took pity on him? The priest and the Levite were a little apathetic apathetic to what was happening around them. They were unable to show empathy uh, to somebody who was clearly in need. So what causes this? What causes apathy? You know, our, our culture really pushes to normalize mediocrity. It suppresses creativity, and it says that if you show emotions or build emotional connections with other people by being vulnerable, that is not cool. In, uh, in, in high schools, in middle schools, uh, there's, there's what is called a uh, PE hero or a gym hero. And uh, the, the, the idea is you shouldn't try too hard in gym because as long as you show up, you're going to get an A. You put in basic minimal effort, you're going you're gonna to get an A. As long as you show up and you kind of you run around a little bit, right? You just got to keep the heart rate monitor in the zone. You know, that's it. But, but there's, there's almost like a disdain for if somebody loves, you know, running around, and they love being really athletic. You guys have seen this, right? Like somebody in gym, they are trying hard. And this game doesn't count for anything. It doesn't count for your school's record, but they're, they're acting as if this is a playoff series in the NBA, right? You know, and they're going hard. This is viewed as, you know, that's not cool. Hey, chillax, man. <laughs> they probably don't say that anymore. That's just what I said, you know. <laughs> it's not cool. You know, it's not cool. It's way cooler to just be, you know, to, to be laid back about the whole thing. There's a lot of things in our culture, man, that, that really put this thing up on a pedestal. Our entitlement uh, assumes that somebody else is going to take care of things. We're fed. We're sheltered. We've got air to breathe. This guy's got to take care of himself. Some, you know, man, somebody else will take care of him. You know, sometimes it's caused by uh, fear. Apathy can be caused by fear of what lies outside of our comfort zones. We're swaddled in the familiar. We know what it's like to live this mediocre life that we have. We're comfortable with this adequacy. But if we were to stretch outside of those bounds, that, that would be difficult and uncomfortable. And so we don't. We don't care because we don't have to. 
We lack interest, concern, and enthusiasm. We don't want to feel or care because it's just easier not to do it. We turn off our conscience because if we were to listen to it, we would really have to change our behavior and our actions. We ignore all the warning signs of apathy if we have any left at all. But but is that life? Is that life like Jesus wants us to live life? Why don't we care like Jesus wants us to care? Because he looked out at the crowds and he was moved. He had passion. He he was moved. He wanted to do something. And even in this, as he's teaching, he says, you want to really be a good neighbor? This this is what you've got to do. How easy, though, is it to cross to the other side of the street? You know, I, I think there's a couple of reasons that it's difficult to care like Jesus wants us to. Uh, first and foremost, we are just overwhelmed by the amount of uh, information that's coming in. Uh, the volume is just too high. You know, on any given day, uh, you're, you're going to you open up your phone or whatever, you scroll through Facebook, it's like, yep, here's another uh, mass school shooting, here's another tsunami, okay, yeah, this uh, friend of mine's trying to raise money to help this kid with cancer, whatever. Scroll through. There's an over, and that, that, that's just in maybe in a half hour time period. You scroll through those things, and it almost has even stopped ticking your conscience to say anything about this. It's just too much. It's a coping me- mechanism. How? What? what can, I can't. What am I supposed to do about all this? I can't do everything. A second thing. So first, we're overwhelmed. Second, we feel helpless to change. Hey, I do care. I really do. I don't have the funds, I don't have the time, I, I can't fly to this place, I don't know these people, I, I'm, I, can't, I can't make a difference, and we tell ourselves that. And then third, I think, and this is maybe one of the biggest, is that we're just blessed and also cursed with, with comfort. Uh, the more comfortable we become, uh, the more our life becomes about us. But what is created here is a cognitive dissonance. We know good. We, we know it. We know what Jesus wants. But then there's also this reality. This is what's really going on. And these two ideas, they're not going together. Cognitive dissonance is when there's this battle going on in your mind, uh, going on in your mind about two or more ideas, and they just don't go together. There's discomfort because one of your convictions is being challenged by some new information or a difficult situation. And these ideas that you have, they're contradicting each other in your mind. It's uncomfortable, and so you do your best to resolve that conflict in your mind. Uh, This term is coined by uh, this guy, Leon Festinger, and his proposition was that human beings are constantly striving for an eternal psychological consistency. They just can't function mentally in the real world if they don't have that. We do not like being psychologically uncomfortable, and so we're motivated to reduce or eliminate this dissonance as much as we are able. So how do we do that? Well, you know, I want to just talk us through some of these things because it helps us understand why, why is it that the, the guys in the parable of the, the Good Samaritan did what they did, and why do we do what we do, okay? First, we justify our behavior, you know, or maybe our inaction, like in, this, like in the parable that we just read, you know, depending on the situation, uh, we add more thoughts into the equation. Well, I, I mean, they really need me at the temple, and so I got to get over there. 
the, the Levite, uh, I've really got to go make these sacrifices for atonement. That's a good thing, right? I mean, I, I am going to serve anyway. I couldn't stop. I'm on my way to do something good. And so in adding more and more thoughts to this equation, we outweigh the negative with, oh, well, you know, I'm okay. I can do what I was going to do. And, and we justify it. Uh, we reinforce our initial thoughts, and in, and in doing that, we lessen the impact that the situation has on us. But we, then we were able to feel less, to care less. Uh, second, we avoid circumstances that will likely intensify our cognitive dissonance, okay? So, well, hey, if I, if I avoid future encounters like this, problem solved. I'll just take a different way home. I don't need to walk by this guy again. I'll just, I'll just take a different road. I'll take a new route. And then I won't have to deal with it. Yeah. If I avoid that encounter, my thoughts won't be as challenging. Just take that for yourself, just right now. And think about areas in your life where you know you'd like to grow more, you'd like to be stretched more, you'd like to see some victories in a certain area of your life. Now, you probably already know the good things that you ought to do to help move you one step forward in whatever that area might be, okay? Now, the the challenge, though, is that we have to overcome this cognitive dissonance and and the apathy that we feel about that situation and intentionally put ourselves in a situation that we know will be challenging to us so that there can be growth and change and breakthrough. This might mean you've got to talk to somebody about something, you've got to talk to someone about something that you have no desire whatsoever to talk about. But you, you will talk about it and then move forward. You know, but, but that's really difficult. That's really challenging. This might mean that you've got to invite somebody into your life to offer you real spiritual discipling and advice about the, the, the most sensitive topics in your life, Uh, your marriage and your parenting and your finances, how you spend your time, the decisions that you make. You may have to just say, come on in. I want help. And then by doing so, you actually could grow. That apathy would be challenged. Let's see where where we're we're at with time here. Okay. Um, How can we do... More than just the minimum. Really, because that, that's kind of the question that this guy asks. He's like, well, what do I have to do to get in? You know, what do I have to do to just make the cut, to be good enough so that I can have eternal life? What do I have to do? Just give me the basic minimum. So, uh, how can, but how can we do more than the minimum? You know, it's kind of funny. He asked that question on the heels of just stating what the greatest commandment is, which is to give it your all. He's like, well, okay, oh, yeah, 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 give him my all, yeah, yeah, okay, I got that. How little can I do? <laughs> there, there's, there's even dissonance in that question. And so I, I want to give you three questions that you can ask yourself. These are real questions you can ask yourself to inspire yourself to be a little bit more self-motivated in this area, to try to attack the apathy that will kill you spiritually if you let it. Three questions. One. Can you do it? Can you do it? So uh, think of a situation in your mind. Okay, uh, any situation. You're trying to grow 
you're trying to make a difference, you're trying to make an impact, something that you feel passionate about, some area that you want to grow spiritually. Ask yourself the question, can I do it? Do I have the training to do it? Let's uh, just, for our purposes, let's say, I want to help somebody become a disciple. Can I do it? This is a, this is a question about training. Okay, this is a question about training. Do I have the training to do the job? Do I know how someone becomes a disciple? Do I know where the Bible passages are that I would need to use to talk to somebody about a biblical plan to be saved? Okay, cool. If the answer is yes, great. Okay, we'll we'll move on to the next one. Next question. Will it work? Will it work? So, can you do it and will it work? Will it work? Do you believe that the behavior for the thing that you know that you can do will lead to the desired result? This is a question about education. Do you just have the knowledge? Do you have the training? Do you have the education? Can you do it? Will it work? Now, a quick difference. Okay, there is a quick difference between training and education. Uh, you do training and then you get feedback. Training is the actual doing. Education is the learning of the information. Training goes beyond that. But if you have both, can you do it? Will it work? And the answer to both is yes. We're headed towards self-motivation and a way that you can unlock some maybe breakthroughs in your life. Uh, third question. And this is the apathy question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? This is a question of motivation. This is a question about consequences. And now, either positive or negative consequences. Uh, do you believe that the consequences of your actions will be worth the effort that you put in? The answer to that question is no, then there will not be growth, and apathy will continue to keep hold on your life. But if you say, yes, I can do it, you know, with, with God and with help, yes, it will work, because I, I have faith that it can. And is it worth it? Yes, it is worth it, because this is something that would bring glory to God. Then, then we can feel competent to know that, man, I'm going to be doing worthwhile work that will be pleasing to God. And if these things are yes, the answer to all three of these questions is yes, then you're, you're likely or more likely to be self-motivated. You know, um, there, there's really a great feeling that you can get when, you're, when you know that you're working towards positive, pleasant consequences, right? When you know, hey, I'm working towards something great like that 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 is a great motivator and helps to dispel some of the power that apathy can hold on us now but on the flip side when we're just working to avoid negative consequences that kind of negative feedback can only go so far um if if our whole motivation to live out our spiritual walk is i just got to do these things so i don't go to hell that's not very motivating Now, if instead your motivation is, I'm going to do these great things on behalf of God to represent Him, bringing Him glory for these actions, and somebody else's life may be eternally changed, you start thinking about that kind of positive impact, man, that can be truly motivating. You know, um, I'm not trying to say that apathy is just something that you can think your way out of or you can strategize yourself out of. 
But I will say a couple of things. God will not let us stay in apathy forever. He cares that we would cultivate our heart over and over and over again so that it would be a good place for spiritual things to grow, to take root, to change our lives and to change the lives of people around us. God will not accept apathy for very long. You know, you could be in a season of apathy right now, but I believe that God can cultivate a heart of love and concern in you. Um, I would encourage you, if you're in that place, you're in this place where you're like, you know what? I don't particularly care, and I don't particularly care that I don't care. If you're there, I want to encourage you to pray the prayer that is in Psalm 51. And it says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Pray that prayer every day until your heart changes. Pray that prayer over and over and over. Invite people into your life and tell them exactly what's going on so that you can cultivate a new heart and a willing spirit. God, uh, God, man, God does not want you to live the Christian life in an apathetic way. He wants you to have great joy and life to the full. Thankfulness will be at its best when we fight against apathy and replace it with the glory of God. Amen. Amen.